Good evening, Patriots. And it's Monday, August 15th in the year 2022. And in the East Coast, you have already left us and you've gone into Tuesday. Patriots, we're going to kind of just do a conversation tonight about a lot of things. But starting tomorrow, we're going to start reading Isaiah from the Isaiah 1 and on. And we're going to do that until we complete Isaiah. I think it's a very important book to have going right now. And we'll have the normal discussion of all things. But I think that's something you can plan on if that's of interest to you. Isaiah going forward to cover all 66 books in Isaiah, or chapters, I'm sorry, 66 chapters in Isaiah. So before we begin, make sure that you're getting a good night's sleep. Make sure you've got great sleep sheets to sleep on and great pillows to put your head on. Right now, quite seriously, it is a it is a very big issue because they're trying to disrupt sleep with so much stress and chaos. And whatever amount of sleep we get, we have to value that and make sure that it is secure and that we can maximize it. So to do that, we have a great place. That place is MyPillow.com. So head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards. You're going to find some amazing sales and specials there. They always have great sales and specials there. And when you get there, you're going to be able to use your promo code, which is, of course, Bards, B-A-R-D-S, to get some of these great savings. Savings Now, naturally, they've got great savings on pillows. They can get them down as low as 1988. And there's also great savings on sheets. And there's a couple different sheets that you'll want to check out. One is the Giza cotton sheets, which they have going a buy one, get one free, which is fantastic. And they also have these Parcal, Parcal sheets. Percal. I have just started using them. I really like them for the summer. They're light, very comfortable, great for the summer. So Giza cotton or Percal sheets. Percal sheets are down as low as $29.98 with your promo code. Of course, then there's just a ton of other great things, mattresses and and you've got down blankets and you have comforters and you have six-piece towel sets and, of course, the new all-terrain, super-duper FBI-proof slippers. And they're down as low as $49.98. So head on over to MyPillow.com forward slash Bards. Use your promo code Bards, and you're not going to be at all disappointed with what you get. Okay, so like I said, tomorrow night, we'll begin reading Isaiah. We'll start with Isaiah 1. And we'll do that regularly each week. I don't know if we're going to do it every single night, but we're going to do it at least you know three nights a week and move through the book of Isaiah. And just I say that because there's things that are going to come up that I guarantee it that we're going to want to jump on and talk about. So that's just life. But... Anyway, I think that'll be a good foundation to move forward as we talk about this. There are some crazy things. I want to play a short piece for you, about a minute or so. Um, It kind of gives you a historical perspective on some of the nastiness that countries do. This happens to be how the British destroyed India and Pakistan with a border. And it's pretty ugly, I'm telling you. (laughs) 
So for one million people died after Britain divided India 75 years ago today. Violent mobs killed scores of people while neighbors turned on neighbors. Seven million people were forced to leave India and travel to Pakistan, while seven million people fled Pakistan for India. Many of them fled on foot, while others were crammed into trains, which later became known as blood trains, after arriving to their destinations filled with corpses. Train passengers would be outright massacred. Sectarian violence, starvation, and disease would quickly kill many hundreds of thousands. Refugees scrambled to relocate to Hindu-majority India and Muslim-majority Pakistan, a border that was drawn by a man who had never been to India before and relied on old census data since he claimed it was too hot to do field research. The border was created in about five weeks. Women bore the brunt of the violence and were treated especially cruelly. Mutilations became standard and about 100,000 women would be kidnapped and forced into marriage. Soon after the partition came a land dispute over Jammu and Kashmir, which later caused three wars, stoking tension between two now nuclear-armed states. The implications of the partition never went away and still hang above the heads of the entire world. I think it's really important to keep historically conscious in this time. I think you all know I, I got my degree in history at Oregon State, and I'm really happy I did. It was a very tough program, and I worked with some very brilliant minds. And it really does challenge you to take a look at where we are from where we have come. Historically, we've learned a lot when we start to really pay attention to how things came about. Unfortunately, the way history is often taught, it gets to be very shallow. And it's very much like I've described scripture recently is that when you read the Bible for me and when I read the Bible, it's very much like a symphony. There's a lot of pieces that are coming together to tell a much bigger story than just what's on the words on the page. And that's what should drive us all to research. So I've mentioned as well that one of my favorite Bibles is a archaeological Bible. I love the Founder's Bible and I also like the archaeological Bible because the archaeological Bible deals with actual archaeological digs and research that make stories come alive with relevant detail. And it's amazing when you start to read that, how you know a lot of the topics of Baal and the worships of sacrifice start to come through in many of the stories. We are missing a lot of our history. Or we don't have a real good framing, and we know that much of our history has been wiped, rewritten, and done intentionally to keep us blind. And, and I think the question one has to ask is, what are they trying to keep us blind from? The one critical issue of controlling people is to separate them from origin and to separate them from a continuity of knowledge that would give them strength. And so as you can rupture that from generation to next, then you have the ability to control people. This is where we get into the difficulty for many to comprehend that there is a master control, master cabal that has been manipulating all of humanity. And this is when we get to these places, those that are still struggling to be awake or who are not at all will default and say that's conspiracy. Nobody has that much power. And sadly, if they had taken any time learning history, they would realize that that power was always there around them with various nation states or various empires, I should say. Rome, for example, has never gone away. It just recalibrated itself and took different forms. And I, though I can't exactly prove this yet, it appears that what happened is when, the Roman, when Rome fell, much of its financial, this part we can establish firmly, that 
the financial sector moved into the Catholic Church. But the question we have to ask is what became of the Roman legions? And my standing theory now from the evidence I've read and have researched is that the legions have moved into the secret societies, into the Jesuit order and these other types of organizations that then have worked in concert with each other, sometimes against each other, sometimes with each other, but all of towards this kind of infiltration of the world. And that's set the conditions for where we are today. We are very much at the mercy of a lot of the information that they've allowed to filter through. And this is, again, where Scripture tends to be so amazing because in spite of it being transcribed by hands, and I, I am one that will tell you this openly, that I don't believe that the Scripture was not manipulated. I think it has been manipulated, and there has been books extracted, kept away from us intentionally. And I, I don't subscribe to the point that God has protected the Scripture. What I do subscribe to is that the Scripture itself is so powerful that even when they try to manipulate, it fails. Because the Scripture itself is written in such a way that you, you can't undo, the, you can't destroy it all unless you just burn the book. But it's, it's really, it's a, that's where God's hand comes in. And so... If they've, if they've omitted a book or they try to manipulate a little something here or there, it is too powerful as a, as a document to be able to, um, to be able to be manipulated. And I, like I said, I am one that does believe they have tried. Now, not overtly, because there's a limitation on this, but I don't, I don't doubt that these people have tried. And in fact, if you think that I'm crazy about this, because I often get people going, dude, this is blasphemy. Well, here's the truth. And you can check this and verify this for yourself right now. In some of the modern versions of the Bible, they are currently writing in woke culture to be to neutralize the idea of gender and to to transition the idea of that Christ would have accepted. They've even done so gone so far as to suggest that Christ Himself was gay. So that this is happening right now, and I think the question. And it's pretty sick because it's getting to a place right now where they're trying to manipulate major sections of reality. And it's something that we have to be ex- extremely, it's extremely aware of. So where I'm going with this is one, the importance of reading scripture, obviously. Another is the importance of finding versions that are very pure in its sense of translations. One of the things that I have I used to be a predominant ESV reader. I have never liked NIV, and I've not liked NIV because I, in my study of translations, translations are a very interesting thing. Um, if you speak a second language, now I, I was, I'm not anymore, but I used to be native fluent in French. That was my second language, and lived in France for a number, well, about six months in total, but traveled a lot in, in that area. And my French has been extremely helpful. It was amazing in Afghanistan when I was able to link up with the French trips and we were able to have full conversations in French. And my, my language, not only was my language near native fluency, but my accent was near perfect Southern French at the time, not, not anymore. It's, it, I, would, I would be like a rusty wheel without a lot of grease at this point in time. But my point of this is I did also did a lot of work in translation. And why this is important is you, be, you become... When you're speaking two languages fluently, you become very cognizant of the effectiveness of words. Some phrases and words in French are brilliant 
and they don't apply to to English. Uh, there is a simple word, I mean, just a simple thing, but it's a it's a very a couple things. But here's one, for example, is papillon, which is just butterfly. It, that's what it means to us in French, at least in southern in this in the areas where I was at. That would mean if you reference to somebody as papillon. It would mean that they were somebody who liked to taste the nectars of many things, meaning that they didn't have a focus in life, but they kept bouncing around. One word accomplishes a lot, right? When you talk uh, in each country, in each language in a country has words like that. When we get into scripture, I don't think we give enough credit to the or, or importance of origins and how much things can change. NIV was designed to be a very accessible Bible easy to comprehend and easy for people to read. I'm of the belief that we don't need to make things that easy. And I, it's one of the reasons I initially rejected NIV, but as you move along and you start to read m- multiple ver- versions, you start to really question, and I do all the time, like who wrote NIV? Because it, it misses a lot of the very important, deeper meanings that are in there. And it just, for the convenience of trying to modernize it into English, that's my impression. If that's offensive to you, sorry, but I'm, I'm pretty much a purist. If I could read in the original languages, I would, I just haven't had time. I did study Greek and some other ancient languages, but I just haven't had time to master that enough to be able to sit down and read scripture in the original. Now that also doesn't mean that that the original is going to give you all the all the information we have because one of the beauties of great translations is they can bring out characters and nuances that we may miss. Currently, my preferred version is NASB 1995, which I happen to have a lot of preference to. That is also what the Founders Bible is written in. And as I've come to be aware of how it was developed, it's a really fantastic translation in my opinion. But it doesn't hurt to read across translations as we do this. This is going to get increasingly important as we're watching them try to change reality in real time. That little piece that we just listened to in the beginning is an interesting correlation to this, though it may seem obscure. And and this is why I, I wanted to bring it in. One of the problems that happened when they did that dividing line is that People were just thrust into, they were mixed together. And the natural order of balance that was there was shattered. And there was no perspective. And instead, the British just drew a line, which they tried to pass off as a guy that didn't want to get on the ground to study. I can tell you it was much more devious than that. The British had great understanding with through their census of what tribes were where. And they would intentionally do things to pit people against each other to create forever wars. Now, if, if we have a historical perspective on things and are aware of some of these, outside, what outside forces do to control us, then you're into, and you are aware of some of the games that they're going to play. History does repeat. In fact, that's one of the beauties of, the, of studying scripture is that we see that even though specific events don't, don't repeat, necessarily that we have great movements of empires that do repeat and that people arrive at similar places. And we can see that through much of the work of the prophets and we can see that through the work of the disciples and, the, and just even a lot of the work in the histories in, in scripture 
that take us through journeys and experiences that we can apply to today. And that's what I really am always curious and, and focused on is how does what was apply to today? Because it's important if we don't do that. Why that has such relevance now is what you're hearing in that first piece there with the British dividing up Pakistan and India and then causing a forever war, basically, which resulted in a million deaths. That would be considered a massive success if they could pull that off here. They almost did here, in fact, with the Civil War. And we lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers, American on American, on our soil because of a divided line and because of the manipulation of a few very devious elites. We have to be very cognizant of that now. So when we take the histories of what elites do and we take the balance of what God tells us in terms of our experiences and the wisdom from those, we end up with quite a mixture of knowledge mixed with faith that is very powerful for us to share, to give wisdom into a culture. And I think that should be a striving goal of ours because there is a great deal of knowledge given. The problem we have with, obviously, with the current narrative is that not only are Christians being tagged as extremists, radical, in fact, if you believe in Scripture, then you are considered a radical Christian these days. But it is, there's a lot of common sense that they don't want people to find. And you'll get this, well, that's ancient history, that's garbage. In fact, We've gone so far now that in the leftist teaching that they've considered us ourselves an ahistorical period, meaning history is over. I'm really not sure how they get that, but except for one guy, and his name was Hayden White, and he wrote for the University of Santa Cruz, and he developed the postmodern view of history that history was fiction. And once he did that and tagged history as fiction, and his argument was that depending on the writer, it was their perspective and therefore it was their opinion and view of events that could be seen very differently through other eyes. They apply that same standard to the Bible, saying that the scribes that wrote this were telling a story from their eyes and therefore it is, the idea is that the Bible is limited in perspective, that it is provide you with snapshots of things mixed in with allegory and mixed in with fiction to tell stories that are unverifiable and often just to keep you into a religious cult. That is the kind of a general leftist view. We know better, and Bible is enriching. It provides you with unbelievable insight into events. It's historically accurate and relevant. We've established that over and over. And on top of it, it does have different styles of writing to express different mechanisms that are important in different ways of telling a story. The ability for it to be manipulated is proven to be very difficult because in spite of the attempts, what we're seeing is that is it stays very consistent with archaeological finds, but we still need to be aware that there's attempts to try to do the nuance changes which can change things radically, hence we get into the need to study different versions. The left has chosen to walk a path which creates a plurality and truth. So this actually is not new, and it's something that many people forget. We tend to look at the idea of this truth, plurality of truth, as something relatively modern. We tend to look at this in our culture here in particular as something that started in about 19 or 1990s, which would have been the postmodern movement. What we forget is that it was actually started 
early, much earlier than that. We can see it emerge in academics with an, a critic called Hirsch, who was an American critic that believed in a singular truth, and he was attacked viciously by the communists, which is no surprise, saying that there was no such thing as a singular, singular and pure truth, that all things were variable. So we can take that back yet another hundred years, and we can go back to the era of the mercantilism moving into capitalism, Marxist writings, and so forth. So there is a persistent attack on truth that has happened over time. And that persistent attack on truth has, over time, in my opinion, weakened people's resolve. In the, when you look at the kind of frontier education that was given to Americans in this country, in particular, when we look at the settlers of the East Coast and then later the settlers of the Midwest and West, that education was rooted primarily and built primarily around a Bible. And that was fundamental because under that, with the Bible, you would learn your math, you would learn your writing, you would learn your, your reading and, and spelling, and then you would, you would learn, obviously, your scripture with God, which is a, it's pretty powerful overall as a single text, obviously. So the question the one has to ask is how do we move so far away from that? Because now if we look at homeschooling or we look at small charter school schooling, the there is so much that they try to bring in to teach in the basics, which is really not necessary. We can learn all of this in the foundations through scripture and then move forward. But again, I think that there is this, as we moved into a period where, where history is supposed to be plural and, and truth is plural, those ideas of using scripture become very uh, unpopular and even they're very hesitant to bring them in for fear of creating, I don't know, I, but I, what I've encountered is for fear of creating religious zealots or narrow-minded thinking. And that's the sad part is the scripture is anything but that. It is one of the most empowering, one of the most mind-opening experiences if we seek what it's trying to tell us deep within. And if we're applying those lessons and those stories to today, I think it unlocks things that otherwise we would miss. It's the scripture is a journey, obviously, in a story in many forms. Scripture is, as we read different versions, it's an eye-opening event to see the, the complexities of translation and the challenges of translation and what that would mean. And when we apply those just basic things like that to our lives with one another, we can start to appreciate why it is so difficult sometimes to communicate to one another. Because even as a common language like English we are seeing things radically different. And in many ways, we're even speaking in a different form based on how we grow up, who we're talking to, and so forth. These aren't leftist ideas of education plurality or cultural influence. Rather, they are very specific to realities we currently exist that have been exacerbated, in fact, by a lot of the effects of these leftist economics that have left whole sections of cities impoverished people separated, building their own idioms in language to try to communicate to one another. All of this is creating a world where we have to interact with and somehow find a center line to continue to bring the awareness and love of Christ into people's lives. There was a picture recently that I think, or a short video, excuse me, of something that really stood out to me as someone who was accomplishing this brilliantly. And it was a pastor, and he was doing work in New York City, and he was 
talking to a young man who is completely dressed in the garb and, and paraphernalia of Baal, B-A-A-L. And that is obviously satanic worship. And he was he even had the, his long fingernails and all this other nonsense. But the pastor engaged him directly, and he they're speaking different languages because this kid has been raised or at least been indoctrinated into the satanic temple. And this pastor is talking to him, but the pastor's starting to get through. And as he moves into him, he says, let me just give you a hug and pray for you. And it's a very unusual scene because here you have this dude. I mean, he's, he's looking straight up like somebody would be throwing babies into a, into a golden calf. But, the young man accepts the hug and the pastor speaks just in very simple. And I just think it was a very beautiful prayer, basically saying, you know, Jesus just help us right here to just heal hearts. And I'm over I'm oversimplifying, but that's essentially it. And it's just a reminder that in all the complexities and nuances of language, one of the amazing things that we end up having is there's a common language we can find. There's a couple of those. One is there is a need for us to have touch and it's important that we put hands on because that's part of bringing healing. There is an important part in keeping the center point to the message, which ultimately is what? In our way of walking, that means bringing and asking Christ to enter into the space to help heal and make the build the bridge. And from there, the door is open and Christ can then fill that heart and do as he does. What I think we miss, and I and I, I'm I feel very strongly about this, is I think that one of the things that we miss when we are studying scripture, when we're in church, is we miss the idea of what healing is. And so we tend to do prayers without hands-on. We tend to do prayers at a distance basically saying, Christ, go do that work for us. And I, I think we've missed it because I think when we, we start to put hands on, it is through us that so much of the healing is accomplished. And I think this is something that we, I would encourage everybody to continue to really take it to prayer and, and look at this. But I, I think we can prove it time and again. And I think that when we look at John 14, 12, which is obviously one of my favorite passages I read here probably every, every night at one point or another, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the father. Christ healed people, but he touched people. So how are we going to accomplish greater works than he, if we are not touching and we're not bringing in that powerful moment of Christ to start to do the healing. I'm encouraging this because I think we can take our prayers to another level, and I think right now we need to. I think that we have enormously deep wounds in this nation, and I think that there are rifts that could lead to some disastrous issue over time, not unlike India and Pakistan, where they have this forever war and they're forever trying to chop each other up and leave their, themselves for dog food. There is a bitter hatred in a certain element in our society for anything related to conservatism and President Trump or patriots or red, white, and blue. And we may never be able to touch that. That's okay. But there is equally a lot of people out here that have never 
that are unconfused would be a way, or they're searching, or they're asking a lot of very good questions about what's the nature of our country, where are we going, and how are we going to fix this massive, for example, income gap, which is phenomenal. And without having a greater conversation and only being framed around Marxist politics, you're going to default to one simple thing. We need to do income distribution, for example, which then riles those on the other side that's like, no, we need free markets. And, but we have two sides talking across each other rather than talking to each other. As a person, as you know, who spent an enormous amount of time in Afghanistan talking to people, that was a, func- a critical function of everything I did, which was engagement and talking to people over very complicated issues. Issues that were often leading to people killing one another. There has to be, you have to find a way to listen. Now, if I've told you, if you've been on the channel, you've heard this story before that I'm going to tell, I'm just, it's worth hearing again. That's what I would say. In Afghanistan, there was a place called Maywand. And Maywand was a very, I'd spent a lot of time in Maywand, so I've had other stories from Maywand, and it's important to to make this understood that Maywand was one of the more violent areas in the South. It was also the home of the Taliban. And the way the Taliban had come to being is they had kicked out the Mujahideen, and they had set up safe passage on the roads, and the Mujahideen, the reason they were kicked out is that they were using, they were forcing tolls on people to charge them a tax to drive on the road. And the Taliban came in and said, get out. We're not going to charge any more tax. It's not, it's against Islamic rule and law. And so they gained a lot of local popularity. So there was a incident that happened where an IED, there was a special forces team that was sent down to Maywan. And that special forces team um, settled in and they settled into the village and they set up their base camp in a, in a place on the edge of the village. And in a short period of time after they were doing some engagements, an IED was set off and it killed one of the team members. Now, I'm going to give the team an inordinate amount of credit here because the work that they were doing at this point was they were not seeking, they were seeking the truth and they were seeking to find the criminal, but they did not try to take it out on the village. In fact, they were trying to deal with the issues of the struggle of this and, and trying to find out who was involved because I'm pretty certain that there were Taliban who had infiltrated. In the process, they brought to their, their team house for questioning a young man. And this young man happened to be the nephew of the village elder who went by Baba John. Now, this gets into a lot of nuance and culture. And again, it's one of these things, how quickly things can escalate if we don't take time to listen and to learn about each other. This young man came in. He came in around 3 o'clock. After about 6 or 7 o'clock, he was released and he walked home. A couple days later, it was announced that the young man had disappeared. And the special forces team now understood that there was a very critical problem because this young man being having disappeared, there was a lot of suggested blame that they had done something to him. In fact, there was increasing stories that they had 
they had not actually killed him or they had done this in retribution and and this started to to foam up and in a really bad way and the thing that you that I learned very quickly in Afghanistan which I don't think is any different in these in our societies today it just takes a different form how quickly a rumor can explode and to literally create people having people go neurotic and suddenly blaming each other in, in, into your violent fight. This is, that is, I, I say it's common. It's common everywhere. It's exactly how we're controlled here. They just do a whisper campaign on something, and pretty soon everybody's like, you did this, you did that, and there's no proof. But we're all rifted again. So the Special Forces team did amazing work to try to find this young man. They searched villages nearby. They set up missing persons posters of him. There's these things called carezes. They're deep, deep hand-dug wells. They're actually amazing. They go down sometimes 100 feet plus, and they're often connected by a, a subterranean canal underneath. They would repel down into these. They, they, they basically searched all the local carezes, trying to find this young man to no avail. And it was getting pretty bad. Um, the elder had refused to talk to them, etc. So this is where I came in because they had reached out to me and they said, can you help us on this problem? I had spent a lot of time looking at cultural issues, a lot of the time talking to elders and a lot of time listening and understanding the culture. And the problem was quite interesting, but easily solved if we understood the clues all about listening. What I had learned over the time by listening to these stories and understanding the nuances is that there were certain very unspoken but very powerful rules that could leave people permanently damaged if you didn't follow them. In this case, one of those rules had been deeply violated. The young man was of age of not having a beard. That's a very important symbol in Afghanistan because it means that you are still very vulnerable and very opportune uh, for those homosexual that are in the Taliban and like to rape young boys. This is raping young men is a common practice, so common that there's actually words that are part of the common language and there's even jokes part of the common language in Pashtun, which is their language down in the South. And it's just part of their culture that just disgusts me, but it's the way it is. What had happened is this young man had come into the Special Forces base and he had arrived before sundown. He arrived around 3 o'clock. When they let him go, he went after sundown. One of the first questions once I got down there I asked is, when you let him go, what was asked? And they said nothing. He was There was nothing wrong. We just told him he could go back to his house. So the next question I asked was, did you contact an elder in the village? And they said, no, I did not. I said, okay. So this got to me, got to right away to the core of the problem. Because what happens in this culture, in, in, in that culture, is that if a young man left after dark and was not escorted by an elder, when he arrived back at the village, it was assumed that he had been raped. Now, this is what ends up happening, is that it's the young man of, of this age who is the nephew of the village elder, the elder whom the village respects and, and will protect, the young man has now been marked as raped. The problem is that if he stays in the village, he will never again be accepted, and the elders 
credentials basically are diminished massively and he won't be respected and order will not be maintained in the village. So effectively, and to simplify a a rather complex problem, a couple of things happened immediately. The young man was moved to another village under a different name and given another place to live to protect the elder, even though the elder knew where he was They did this. The next thing that ensues is the stories about the special forces team doing something to him because this is the narrative that protects the elder. They're blaming the special forces team to save face for their elder because they don't consider the special forces team to be permanent in the village. It's actually quite an amazing functioning of culture to maintain stability in the village. The problem is how do you unlock something like that? And again, it goes back to listening and conversations and having to bridge a very difficult language barrier. If you know anything about Pashtun, Pashtun is a nightmare of a language. It's very old, very ancient, has a lot of nuances in the way it speaks, and its language structures are very complex. I knew about 50 words, and that's about as far as I got, and I was not fluent by any means. I just had enough to get me by. So this came down to me sitting down with the elder, Baba John, who knew me. I had worked with him before. And I just had a conversation, and, and we kind of got to the point. And I said, Baba John, I, I said, I understand the problem. And I kind of mapped it out in a delicate but respectful way. And I said, and I know your nephew is alive. So I need to know how we're going to solve this. Because your fate, you have, you're, you have been, you've retained your honor the special forces team is trying to continue to do good work here and you need you need them how are we going to solve this and as i decoded for him the cultural aspects of what had happened i gained the respect of him of understanding how the rules worked in the process of this he looked at me and he says it is all done we're good now let us continue as we were and just like that the entire problem went away. And literally within the next day or two, he was then meeting again with the special forces team that they were back in the village. And it's as if the problem never happened. And that's a long story. What's the relevance? There are really, if we learn to listen and pay attention to how people operate, if we're cognizant of the fact that there's different ways of seeing the world, that many times language is a barrier, but we have to get to understand the deeper meaning and how languages work and what the nuances are. That means listening. That means being awake. It means paying attention to detail. There's most problems we can solve through a form of communication and negotiation. Ultimately, we're building bridges and making peace. I'm a massive one on doing this sort of action. And in many times, people diminish or try to pass off the sort of things when I talk about the importance of prayer, the importance of holding the line, not reacting to some of the violence, being very solid. And there's a couple of reactions I get which are not uh, rare. One is that somehow that I don't understand the nature of the fight, and the other is that, I mean, you're, you're trying to go like to Jesus on us. It's none of the above. It's what Christ would do. More importantly, even than that, it's the way that Christ showed us to solve the problems that most problems can be resolved if we listen and pay attention to details 
And in effect, we bring peace and healing. As we bring Christ into these conversations, that power gets even greater. The one little nuance on this whole or sub piece on this whole story I just told you, which is extremely important to understand is that was a Muslim with a Christian. We were sitting together. We were having a very mature conversation about what was said to be the death or disappearance of his nephew. We didn't go to swords. We didn't go to guns. We talked through, and as I decoded what his culture did, he gained respect for me from the culture that I came from. We didn't let religion get in the way, because in a center point, there was some common values that we could find. If I can sit with somebody like that, or I can sit with Taliban, as I have, if I can sit with Bloods and Crips, as I have, if I can sit with American militia and even... At one story, another night, I'll tell it, a very, very radicalized leftist group that joined us in a militia meeting, which was insane. And we brought understanding, myself and another guy brought understanding to that group. What I'm going to tell you is it's a whole lot easier to fight and it's a whole lot harder to build peace. But when you build peace... You build something that lasts and transforms people's lives. And that's what we need right now. There is a lot of tension, a lot of anger, and a lot of fear going on in many levels. And people are eager to try to jump on the trigger. Don't. Trust in Christ. Trust in the deeper lessons that exist within his, his experience here on earth. Learn to listen Learn to understand who you're speaking to. Meet them where they are. And when you do, and you take the time, and you put in the effort, I'm going to tell you, the rewards are so incredible, they're life-changing even for you. They changed me. And it's profound moments like that that reinforce the point that even in diverse cultures, in, in religions that are too often diametrically opposed, we can find peace. And I've done it enough times to tell you it works. But that's not the State Department piece of trying to buy this or that and offer to build a bridge or a well and then maybe bring in a new road construction. That's garbage. That shit never lasts. But what does last is when you talk to somebody's heart. What does last is when you speak in the language that we all have and an appreciation for honor and respect and Cultural, cultural differences and cultural nuances and the things that make us, when we can get to those languages, we can literally come to make incredible bridges, incredible peace. I'm of the belief that we are not going to settle this crisis in this nation until we find those pathways and start building those bridges. I'm not telling you God's told me that, but I'm going to tell you it's big on my heart. And one of those biggest bridges we have to find a way to build is First Nations and us, which I call Last Nations. We are going to have to heal this land. The differences that were here, the people that were here before us, and, of, and then us and our ancestors of descent, all of the people that were brought here in their different forms, whether it was by immigration, slavery, whatever, we are going to have to sit down and break bread and figure out how to get past this garbage 
that the deep state has done intentionally, which we can identify now as a deep state, more of a global cabal, to keep us perpetually divided. That's up to us. That's not simply going to be a snap of the fingers by God. But God will work with us and God will reward us with it. But it's going to be hard work. And that to me is what we face. One of the biggest challenges in the history of this nation that will either raise us or make us fall. But if we strive for greatness and we're going to take the time and patience to try to build those bridges, even with people that often don't want to build bridges, we will be rewarded. And that's where I think we are in a most incredible and critical juncture in our time. That is the valley of decision. And it's an amazing place that we sit with an amazing opportunity and of, a, of an unbelievable, unbelievable victory that we can do and we can be part and parcel of letting God work through us. And to me, that's worth every step and every bit of sweat and tears that we put into it because it brings something that lasts that will change the nation forever in a wonderful way and will set us on a course unlike anything we've ever imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this very, once again, of just a very great assembly of patriots to come together to talk, to reflect very deeply and to just reflect on wisdom of life as we try to move through a very difficult and challenging space navigating the differences we have with one another often the deep rifts of hate the anger the violence father what we learn and have learned from christ is that all things are possible through him and all things are possible through you and so tonight we we just pray for that strength of patriots to have the desire the will to literally come together and to try to listen, to learn of one another, to meet each other where they are rather than where we want people to be, to break bread, to have conversations, and to remember that all conversations themselves are a process, not conversations with an agenda, but conversations just trusting in you and letting those words move through us and through each other. Father, in this time, we need much of this. This is the power of healing and building bridges. And so we pray for that in this nation. We pray for mercy for our nation. And we pray for the power to build bridges. Those that seek to seek that challenge to be able to sit with others that we don't, that maybe we wouldn't otherwise sit with, but to find a way to communicate, to build the bridge and to heal. And so with that, Father, we pray for healing of this nation and healing of ourselves. And we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, one of the things I said in that prayer, and I forgot to mention, but it's here, but it's important in the story. I can't tell you literally, and I do mean literally, how much bread I broke with other people. There's always none. Afghans make the best bread ever. If it's hot and fresh, but literally breaking bread where you're, you're sharing on a common dish you're, and, and men eat together and many places you'll eat. Some places not, but many places you're going to eat off of a common plate and you're going to eat with your hands in some places 
and you're going to eat with your hands and bread. But there's literally bread being passed around and people are breaking bread. These are these old customs, old way of things aren't that old and they're not that distant from our own culture, but they seem to be now. It's hard for people to find time to literally take time to sit with each other, break bread, have a conversation. And that in itself is really profound. If we take the time to do that and take the time to break bread, enjoy what's put before us, it doesn't, it gives us something greater than ourselves to focus on. And it's one of the most amazing experiences and how it itself can open up conversation. I just have tons of stories about that and it's just so enriching every time. We have to go back to go forward. We've got to learn our old ways in great ways. It is literally, we are, we are, we are standing by the roads and looking and asking for the ancient paths and where the good way is and we need to walk in it. And when that's where we find rest for our souls. Jeremiah 6.16 Patriots, keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. Walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ because we are at war. So occupy the land, expand the kingdom, mission forward. I'll see you tomorrow for, bar, for Bended Knee. Until then or until the next time, God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. All this time we had to prove that we could stand here too. All the nights been pushing through Fight for all we had to lose Reaching out for something To pull us up to the level ground Oh, I can see it now I can see it now
sunsets down over the hill where the lost got found. Reaching through somehow. Oh, you're an island when the world is too loud. When the seasons change, I know the space between us will stay the same. Resting on this faith, when your soul answers calls far away. Safe place to hide from the rain.